this is the Lenten season, and we'll talk about the lecture in a little bit, but Lenten is the season that leads up to Easter. And during that time, a traditional church calendar is set apart for sort of um, spiritual discipline. Lenten is about um, uh, repentance, it's about acknowledging sin and purifying your life and getting ready for Easter and things like that. And so many people during the Lenten season, um, to, to remember a, a sacrificial life, give something up. Are any of you giving up anything for Lent? No? All right. Herb's not. Anybody? Anybody doing? Yeah, okay. Santana's. Oh, man, I guess that's it. That's okay. Um, anyway, the idea of that is, is like uh, it's, a, it's an act of discipline. So what we're going to do during this Lenten season each week, we're going to talk about a different spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is something you can do to grow spiritually. And so this morning I'm going to start out with prayer. Um, and then we'll do sermon over scripture in a little bit. But um, I just... Some of you, especially from if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about prayer, and then you'd love to, okay, yeah, but how? I just sit and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk to God. Okay, this is a little system that can kind of help you um, begin to develop a prayer life. So what I recommend is two things. First of all, you get a little notebook. I use moleskins. That was the notebook used by Jesus. Others prefer... Um, spiral notebooks. You write four letters down the left-hand side, P-A-T-H. That's going to guide your prayer time. Then you do this. You get a sticky note. Let me tell you something. One thing that can transform your prayer life is a sticky note. You put the sticky note right there. That's your inbox for every thought you have while you pray because you will come up with great things to do. And you'll remember everything you've forgotten while you sit to pray. But instead of being distracted by that, you just write it down. And then you can go back to what you're doing. So a little sticky note. Essential prayer tool. Next to the P, take a few lines for praise. Basically, you're looking for things to say good about God. God, I praise you for... Like, I'm not very good at this part. I always end up talking about like nature or the seasons change or whatever. In the midwinter, I hate it all, so I say thank you that the summer's coming. I praise you for the summer and the warm weather that always comes back around or whatever. Um, another thing you can do if you're like me and not very good at that is you go to the Psalms, which conveniently start with the letter P, and you find a psalm that, that is like that, that you connect with, and you just rewrite that in your own words. Or you do another thing that starts with P, you plagiarize, and you go to a favorite worship song, and out those lyrics or something like that. You just steal somebody else's praise to God and make it your own, so that you just spend a few lines talking to God about how great he is. That's, that's the P. Then there's the A, and that's apologize. You apologize. You're, this is your, your confession time. God, I'm sorry that I overlooked the image of God in that person at the U-Scan aisle and thought all kinds of awful things about them because they were too slow. Recurring thing in my apology section. Whatever it is, you're apologizing and, and confessing to God. Then there's the T, that's thanks, that's the gratitude section. God, thank you for what, whatever it is that, that you're thankful for. Then 
And then, and then there's the, um, the, the H, that's the help. That's the, that's the typical prayer list. God, please help me with this. I need this. Please give me this. Please do this for me. Please do this for him, whatever. And usually after you spend time with praise and confession and thanksgiving, uh, that's when you can reevaluate a lot of the dumb things that we ask for that are completely selfish. And that makes the help so uh, time much more meaningful. And it's not just like, you know, sitting on Santa's lap. We're, we're really in connection with God, thinking about him and what's important to him. So if you're at a place where you want to start praying and just need how, what do I do? Consider that. So one more thing. In the app, on the app, under sermon notes, on the sermon notes button, you push that button and you open up today's sermon, which is back to the garden, and it starts off walking through that if you just need a reminder of what those, um, what the path is uh, for prayer. So doing this lectionary thing where there's this, uh, there's this thing out there in the church world called the lectionary. And it's a system of, of weekly scriptures that gets people through a rotation of the Bible, like three years on Old Testament, three years on New Testament, and three years on the Gospels. And I don't think this is going to like hold up for nine years, but um, we're doing it for a while. And uh, there's Advent, which is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And then there's the system, there's a series in the lectionary called Epiphany, which is a scriptures based on the appearance of Jesus and the significance of his appearing. And, and now we're in this Lenten season, um, which, which is a kind of a progression in the lectionary of, it's, these are all going to be up for now in, in Easter, they're redemption stories, they're redemption passages that focus on God's redemptive plan in the Bible so that we're ready by the resurrection. Um, and so we're going to start out today with Genesis, well, like the second chapter in the Bible, and, and we're going to see that God's redemptive plan has been doing its thing since the very uh, beginning of the Bible. So uh, this is all going to crescendo over the next seven weeks to the story of the resurrection, the ultimate high point of God's redemption. So when we look at the creation account, what we're going to see is that we really can't appreciate the resurrection without understanding the creation account. It's a big part of, of, of getting us ready for Easter. Unfortunately, the Bible is um, often seen as a kind of textbook, um, maybe a textbook of, of theology, or maybe it's a book of rules we tend to study the Bible or take in the Bible by sections, jumping around, and, and so we rarely see it as, a, as an actual story. And you might just stop right there and ask yourself, how do you see the Bible? Do you treat it more like a rule book or maybe it's like an inspirational book for great life quotes? Um, maybe it's a self-help manual. But I want to challenge you to think in terms of the Bible as a story. And I don't mean like fictional story, I'm talking about any kind of story being told that has a, a plot, it, it, it's headed somewhere, it has moves and it's about something, there's conflict, there's resolution. And like so many stories or movies, what happens at the very beginning usually somehow frames up the story, like if you get into a movie that's plot based, 
and you turn it on in the middle of it, you're, you're kind of lost because you don't know where the story started. And so a big part of understanding God's story and what it's about is seeing where it starts. So we're back in Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of the Bible, and we're going to get a big picture of what God's story is about this morning. Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what I want you to pretend is that you know nothing about God, and you got this book that was airdropped, and it's there in your lap, or maybe an angel comes to you and says, here, this is the story of God. And you start to just kind of turn the pages and you see that God creates the world and God creates the garden and God has a man and he puts him in the garden and then God says to the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die and you stop and you contemplate. So what we see from... Genesis 2. And I want to challenge you this week to do some extra reading. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in one setting. Take you about 15 minutes. Genesis 1, the first three chapters of the Bible, read it in one setting. We're going to see that God creates man. And according to the Bible, that man is named Adam. He has a wife, Eve. And God places him in the garden to take care of it. Wasn't to get as much as they could out of it gather as much as they could it was to take care of it that was their responsibility and if it stopped there you'd think that the main purpose the point of the story was simply for humans to look after the world that God created but we see that there's more God gave Adam a command or a rule or a boundary that one boundary gives us a lot to think through first we see that God communicates with his people. So you're reading this story for the first time and you see, okay, God created this world and God put the man in the garden, but God also communicates with people. He didn't just wind the world up like a watch and let it go to do other things. He's actually engaging with people. So now we learn that about God. We also see from just that little bit that we read in the lectionary that God cares about the actions of the people he created. That's not intuitive, like you wouldn't necessarily know that, except that you're reading it. This is a God who actually cares about the way his people live. The way they think, how they respond to their desires matter to God. This is not just, here's a world, take care of it, see you, bye. This is, I'm going to give you rules and I care about the way you react to the creation. The next thing we see is that there's a kind of naivety at first in the story. There's a freedom from evil and stress over evil. A freedom from judging. That's how the story starts. God wants that for the people that he creates. It's as if God says, you can just be happy with the work that I give you, with our friendship. Or, you can go 
to a deeper understanding of the way things work. Like there's a choice in creation. You can either just be good with me as your God, living together, enjoying our relationship. But there's a choice. There's also this tree. And it will take your understanding to deeper places and it will separate us. And I, I hope you'll stick with me, God, you're enough. It's as if God says, here's a blue pill. Take the blue pill. Live in naivety. Let me be your enough. Or there's this red pill. You'll know good and evil. It will change the relationship between me and you. Take the blue pill, take the red pill. I hope you'll take the blue pill. The choice is yours. So that leads us to this concept of choice. A big part of God's story is choice. We see that God builds choice into the equation. The man God creates has the ability to choose God or himself. And this seems to be a very important part of the story unveiled in the Bible. God wants people who will choose him. God doesn't seem to force anything in his story. He advises us to choose him, but it's ultimately up to us. And I think this is why God doesn't answer our prayers all the time. It's important as we read the story of God to understand that choice matters, and that's why he doesn't answer every prayer. We ask, why doesn't, do, why doesn't God do the things that he did in the Bible? Well, listen, if I were to go, let's say God gives me a golf club and says, here's your staff, with it, do whatever, and I go out to Brunswick Lake this afternoon, and I strike the water with my golf club, and it parts, and I stand there all day, and the water's parted, going up to the sky like the Red Sea of the Old Testament. After about an hour, how many, what's the size of the crowd? Tens of thousands? By the end of the day, there are probably millions of people come from states away to see this amazing thing that I've done with the golf club of God. Next Sunday, what would we need? About 20 services? Tens of thousands of people would come because they saw the thing. But there's no choice there, really. God has proved himself. And God seems to much rather you choose him, much rather we, his creation, choose him, than to grovel before the greatness of the Almighty because he's overwhelmed us with what he can do. We also see in this story that there's consequence for choosing our desires over God's desires. We see that God's apparent design was for people to live in a garden of paradise with no death. God's desire was an eternal situation where people would fill the earth and take care of it. They would walk and talk with each other and with him. There would be no death, only paradise. In fact, look at the last verse of Genesis 2. Adam and Eve and his wife were both naked 
and they felt no shame. There's no guilt. There's no shame. That's God's desire in the story. Paradise, no guilt, no death, no pain, no shame, nothing to hide, nothing to hide from, no one to blame, nothing to blame for. Total innocence. Adam and Eve live in authentic friendship with each other and with God. No death, no fear, no sadness, nothing to hide. Then we get to Genesis 3. So you've read that first part of the story that an angel gave to you or that dropped from the sky or whatever, and you're starting to understand, okay, there's this creation, and there were these people, and God walked with them, but they had a rule, and they could choose what they wanted. Now you get to Genesis chapter 3 and the story of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Don't touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And it goes on to say that the next time God was walking through the garden looking to talk with his people, they ran and they hid. They hid from God. And from that point on, we have spent our existence trying to cover and compensate from all that we traded away when we chose to go our way instead of God's. So we've met God in this story, and we see that God created humans. We see that God has a plan for people that he cares about. And we see that he wants them to choose him. And we see that this hope was that we have paradise where we both, he and us, interact together for all eternity. But we also are now introduced to the enemy. Third chapter, right out of the gate. We see God's story, God's desire, and then we meet the enemy. And in this story, he takes the form of a serpent. I have no idea how that works. But I do know that if we're going to put our faith in Scripture, then the enemy is a part of it because he is all throughout the Bible. From the first few chapters of the Bible all the way through the end, Jesus has a lot to say about him. Peter, Paul, Matthew, Luke, they all believe in the existence of Satan. Jesus begins his public ministry in the book of Matthew with a battle between him and Satan. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew goes on to tell about the encounter. Luke 10 says, Jesus says in Luke 10 that Satan is at work to undo everything that God is doing in your world. 
Peter says that the devil prowls around like a lion looking to devour us. Ephesians 6 says, and I think it's wrong up on, the, it's Ephesians 6, not Ephesians 4. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So put on the full armor of God. John, or 1 John 3, okay, John, Jesus' closest friend, says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And while I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about Satan or focusing on the devil, we need to acknowledge that there is this being in Scripture who works with other beings to undo what God is doing in this world. It's a part of the story. The last thing we see from our reading today is that humanity's posture before God is radically altered because of sin. Adam and Eve move from innocent and authentic to hiders and liars. They blame each other when they talk to God. They hide from God. They're ashamed. And ultimately, they're now going to die. Death is the new reality. The introduction to the story is completed by a promise. And this is really important, especially as we think about Easter and the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. We see a promise in Genesis 3.15. So we see God paint the picture of the paradise the person with the boundary and the enemy that wrecks the paradise, that wrecks the relationship with God, that coaxes Adam and Eve into choosing rebellion. <coughs> Excuse me. Then we read this in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is why this is all important. You're reading the Bible. First time. Taking it all in. And you see God's dream for his people. And you see that that dream, that vision, was destroyed by an enemy. Every story is about that conflict between the good and the bad. And then you see this promise, like that's awful. You're reading it in and you see this amazing thing, this amazing picture. And then you see this enemy that destroys this God's plan who loves his people and destroys humanity. And oh, but then you read this promise where God says, I'm going to destroy you. The woman's offspring will destroy you. And that frames the way you read the rest of the story. Like, now you're in the story to find out how is this serpent defeated by the offspring of a woman. And you page through the Old Testament, and it's not very long, and a few chapters later, where you read that God says, not only is he going to defeat the enemy, but God comes to a man named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to redeem everybody. Everybody will again be blessed through your offspring. So there's a curse that enters the world at sin. And God says, I'm going to defeat this enemy. And then he says, everybody's going to be blessed. And that takes us up to the cross. And we learn 
that that serpent's head was crushed by the offspring of a woman. God became flesh Jesus, born from Mary, died on the cross, and at that moment when it seemed the serpent had struck the heel, what really happened through the crucifixion is the serpent was crushed by God. Because the Bible tells us that the curse was ended through the crucifixion. Because all of our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for. So that guilt and that shame that separated us from God was done away with on the cross. Now, if you go home this week and you read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. It's the future. It hasn't happened yet. What you see is the story ends the same way it begins. Because it says that God returns to the earth. His dwelling place is among people. And he will be their God. And they will be his people. And he wipes every tear from their eye. And there's no more death. The punishment for sin is done away with. And then it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And a river flowing through the city. And on that river is the tree. It's the garden restored. So the story begins with paradise and a garden of Eden. And that's wrecked. And that's redeemed. And the story ends when we're back there. So God's story for this world and for your life is a redemption story where we head back to the garden to have that intimacy with God. And the amazing thing is, because of Jesus, you can go back there now. We can go back there now. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our life about? If, God, if this is a story of redemption, if this is a story about people being redeemed to what they had in face-to-face -face friendship with God, what's your story about? Because sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we feel that void and try to fill it with stuff with money, with power, with love, with attention, with social status. <clears throat> we get distracted, and, and it's time to realize that and label that as a distraction and go back to the garden where God is waiting for face-to-face -face friendship with you, to accept what Jesus did for you, canceling out the sin that separates you from God, so that you can be again back in paradise. And if you look at your life this morning and find that you have gone far from the garden, there is nothing keeping you from returning to Jesus and going back to the garden. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your story. Thank you for telling us what it's all about. Thank you for Jesus paving the way, paying the price for our sin. And your word says, though we are far away, you gather us back. And right now our hearts return to your garden. Face-to-face -face friendship with you. In Jesus' name.